Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be tuning in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. Today's today's edition, episode 352 of Bible Bites, as we read through the scriptures this year, is found in the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 through 6. Oh my gosh, they are so loaded. So I, I apologize if this is a bit lengthy today. I will do my best to hit the highlights and promise you, I promise you, it will be skimming the surface of the depth of what's in this book. As a matter of fact, Hebrews is one of my favorite books, and I do um, intend to do, I've done a teaching before on the book of Hebrews. I believe that in 2021, if the Lord wills and allows me, I will be doing that again. And I'll be actually recording it, and you'll be able to uh, to pick that up. And then I will delve deep into all of these chapters and all of the meaning. I've got about 12 and a half pages of notes right now. And there's no way I can share those with you in any decent time. So let me get started, and I will try to skim through some very important highlights from these six chapters. First of all, the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned, is one of my very favorite books, and I will explain that in just a moment. But first, let's consider who, who authored it and who wrote it. It's not known. The author and the date really both are in question. Uh, some believe that Paul wrote this book also. Now, we have officially ended the Pauline epistles with um, the book of Philemon. Hebrews is considered by some to be one that Paul wrote, but that is not necessarily the case. It is not known for certain. There are some reasons why Paul may or may not have written this book. And as I get into the, um, the teaching of this, I will spend a lot more time delving into who may or may not. But I just want to throw these out to you right now. Paul is obviously one that is considered and, and even thought by many to be the authors, the author of this book. However, there's reasons why that may not be the case. Other potential possible authors are Barnabas, Apollos, some even have suggested Priscilla or Luke. Now, you know, I have a personal opinion myself, and I can explain that when we get into the study of this book a little bit later on. I really don't want to get into that because it would take up too much time right now to do that. The date is in question. However, most people believe, or most scholars believe, that this is written primarily to Jewish Christians, uh, perhaps even in the city of Rome, Italy, maybe Jew and Gentile mixture, but very likely to Jewish Christians. And so they believe that it was written before 64 AD, especially if it is directed to the church in Rome before Nero's persecution began. So in essence, it's kind of preparing them um, for that and some very important information here. The theme of this book can be summed up in one word, better. It speaks all throughout here. It's going to show us that Jesus is better. He is 
sufficient. He is superior. He is supreme. He is more excellent. All throughout this book, we will see that. I like to call Hebrews the bridge to excellence. It is the book that bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament together and expounds on the old and reveals what's in the new better than any other book in the scriptures. Um, it, is, it is an awesome book to explain the two and how they connect. It connects the Old Testament types and shadows with their New Testament fulfillment. It forms the connection through the revelation and understanding of all of the Old Testament scriptures with their prophetic pics, pictures. Chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 3, and I will spend probably the most of my time talking about a few things out of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then I'll try to rush through the others, skimming some surface for you. Um, but as I said, look forward to that more in-depth study of this book. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the forefathers of the faith, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm going to read verse 4 also. Having become so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You're going to see better than, more excellent, uh, superior. You're going to see those things as we go through here, because that's the theme of this book. Now, I want to point out in verses 1 through 3 several elements. First of all, speaks about how God spoke in various times and in various ways in the past. But now, in the last days, which began according to Peter on Acts chapter 2, it's clear that he spoke, he has begun to speak through Jesus his own son. So let's look at that. I love to understand the book of Hebrews and these few verses particularly as a jigsaw puzzle. It, it fits perfectly with what God is saying here in verses 1 and 2 uh, especially. I enjoy jigsaw puzzles. Not everybody does. Some, some people, they ag aggravate them and irritate them. Um, others enjoy them. I happen to be one that enjoys them in some downtime when I take a day of rest or whatever. And in a jigsaw puzzle, what you have is you have a box that has a picture on the front of the box. And then inside the box are a bunch. You know, you can get 30-piece puzzles. You can get, you know, 750-piece, 5,000, you know, I mean, 500 pieces, 2,000 pieces. You can get however many you want when you buy them in the store. 
But every one of them you will find is a bunch of pieces in there that have have been cut up. They're parts and parcels of the entire picture. But none of them alone form the whole picture. But it is necessary that you put them all together to see the entire picture. So the Old Testament can be understood to be the box that has all the puzzle pieces in it. Everything about Jesus, that's why he said when, when he met with those on the road to Emmaus, he, um, he chided them a little bit. He says, shouldn't the scriptures have been fulfilled? And then he goes through a Bible study, and the Bible says that he began with Moses all the way through the prophets. He took them through the Old Testament, and he showed them himself in the Old Testament. He talked to some of the Pharisees, and he says, you search the scriptures, but you don't recognize that everywhere in those scriptures, I am. You're reading about me. You're seeing bits and pieces of who I am. You're seeing that the puzzle pieces that form me are in that box. It's like he is the picture on the box. Jesus is the completion of that. So what the New Testament does is it takes all those pieces and it begins to connect them. And it shows us how they connect to form the entire picture that is on the box. The New Testament puts them all together and shows us what that puzzle was all about all along, and it's Jesus. So it reveals Jesus to us in his first coming. Let's talk about who he was. He's God. Well, first of all, in his first and his second coming, some of these things apply. He's God's son, but he was also appointed by God heir of all things. You can see that again spoken of in Revelation 4.11 and in Colossians 1.15 through 20. He created the world. Colossians 1 tells us that, that by him and through him was everything made that was made. So Jesus created the work. In other words, he's the one that did it. Can you imagine? He's the one that got down in the mud, in the dirt, and put a clump of dirt in his hand and began to form man from that. And he, he drew it up and he made a man that could stand on two feet and have two arms. And he put a heart in him and he, and he crafted a, a tapestry of veins and of, of nerves and other things inside this human being that he made. All of those things that we read about, Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus did every one of those. He created them. He is the bright, shining rays of God's glory. He's the express, uh, that brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The person of the Godhead revealed in the Father, the Father, the person of the Father. Jesus is the exact duplicate in every way, the exact replica of God the Father. That's why he declared to those who asked him in John 14, 9, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. There's no difference, not even a crease or a crevice that is different. Jesus reveals to us the express image of God the Father. 
It says he upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, he holds it up. He keeps it all together. He bears it. He, it, it, it consists because of him. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. It says he upholds all things by the word of his power. His powerful word. His powerful rhema. Living word that was spoken as an order or a command. So I want you to understand when, you know, you look it up in the sky or you study about astronomy or you study about outer space and, and the earth and the, the planets and so forth. Think about this. They still orbit. God set them in motion. Now, I happen to believe it was about 6,000 or so years ago when the earth was formed and, and all of that. I do believe in a young earth. And whenever God created these planets, he, he established them. He said, I want you to orbit. Now, there's something else about that. It's a spin dance. Praise be to God. They are praising the Lord in that orbit. And that's another topic for another day. But my point today is this. God said, you're going to circle the earth. You're, I mean, you're going to circle around in an orbit. He established the orbit for them with his word. And for now, at least the 6,000 years, they have done that every single day. And every single day, the earth is in an orbit around the sun. Every single day. And you know what set it in motion? His word. And you know why it still consists? Because of his word, the power of his word. He spoke it and it is done. He commands and it stands fast, the psalmist says. So in other words, when he said, you're going to spin around the sun, guess what? Today they're still spinning around the sun. And unless and until God ever tells them different, they will continue to spin around just like God told them to do just like the Lord himself said to them. Praise be to God. <clears throat> he tells us then, he says, this is what Jesus did and what it means to us in summary form. He said, then Jesus himself, it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he had cleansed and removed our sins. Now he can, he can occupy the seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, having been raised to life from the dead by the Lord. And now he sits there in a state of rest. Why? Because the work has been completed. He has finished what was needed. His work was enough. It was actually more than enough. And that's why on the cross, Jesus could make the declaration, it is finished. He did it all, everything that was demanded. So the rest of chapter one is going to show us in detail how Jesus is superior to the angels. He is far better even than the angels. And it also gives us um, the explanation of the angels. It's interesting, too, that it says here that the angels were to worship him. And we see that they, in fact, did that in Luke chapter 2. So this book, this chapter is, is talking about Jesus 
being over the angels far superior than even angelic beings. Chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression, disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect <coughs> excuse me, so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now, that's a long question, but he's asking, he says, how in the world could we possibly escape? I want to talk about this for a minute. He says, on the basis that Jesus is the superior one, we must be careful. We must be earnest and give earnest heed to the things we've heard. If we don't, the danger is that we will drift away. Now, when I think about something drifting away, it reminds me, it makes me think of a lake where you have a boat that's tied to a dock. Now, if the person, if the boat owner is not careful um, and giving very attention and, and diligent heed to securing that boat and he just kind of wraps the rope around the the pole or whatever and then sort of leaves it and kind of forgets about it neglects it doesn't pay much attention to it and there's any kind of looseness in that um in that rope around the pole guess what will happen it won't happen right away he won't necessarily see an hour later that his boat's gone, but a slow drifting can begin because there's going to continue to be winds and waves. And so through the night or the next day, as the winds come by, it begins to kind of rock that boat a little bit, which has the effect of loosening the rope a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more as time goes on. And so between the waves, kind of just, just even, not even rough, but just gently, just gently kind of um, moving and rocking that boat, even if it's gentle, over a period of time, if that boat owner has not been careful to watch out and to take care of securing that rope over a period of time, he will find himself looking out one day and the boat's either gone because it's been, you know, destroyed or whatever, capsized maybe, or it's in the middle of the lake. And he's like, how did that happen? It happened because he neglected to secure it very well. It happened because he didn't pay attention and watch out and make sure it was good and tight. He left a loose link in that rope. And so that's what he's talking about here. It, a loose link will cause us to drift away. we got to secure everything with the Lord. Neglect, lack of attention, not giving heed will cause it to not be secure. 
and we'll, we will find ourselves having drifted away. That's the danger, and that's what the author of Hebrews is warning us against. And it concurs with, with Solomon in Proverbs 4.23, when Proverbs says this, Give heed and diligence to your heart. He says, guard your heart with all diligence. Because we can drift if we don't. We can drift away and we can lose what needs to be kept. So I just share that with you because God really uh, sealed that in my heart to share with you today. Praise God. So he goes on and he says, so if, if, that, if, if the angels and the word that they said, take for instance, when they came to Sodom and Gomorrah, and, you know, there was a swift and true sudden judgment that, that fell on them. The author here is saying, how are we going to escape if we neglect such a great, such a beautiful, costly, precious salvation? How would we escape any form of judgment or consequences from that? Just like the boat owner, he may have lost his boat. He may have to now go and buy another boat. Or repair his boat because it's been damaged. Or find some other way to go out in the middle of the lake and get it and bring it back. How is he going to escape the consequences? And all of those consequences could have been avoided if he had been more careful to begin with. That's the point of what he's saying here. Don't neglect. Don't, um, don't find yourself having drifted away because you didn't give the more earnest heat to the importance of God's word and to the things that God says. Praise be to God. I wanted to also just point out in verse 10, talks about uh, this as he goes on and he begins to talk about Jesus and how he became a human being. And he explains more of that here. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him from whom, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus came so that he could lead us and let us accompany him into glory. Praise God. And what I found was when I was studying this, that that word glory can include judgment. It can include um, a time where there's a verdict. And it's interesting because sometimes we think of judgment as being all negative. But you can go to court and your hope is in court that you are going to receive a favorable verdict, not an unfavorable one. And I believe that's what it's talking about here. The glory that will give a favorable verdict so that there can be good standing and a good opinion of one. That's all included in this kind of definition of this Greek word. And what it made me think about, and I, I just want to share this with you. I don't have an answer to this, but it's, it's awesome to ponder and to think about. How much joy does it bring Jesus to stand in court before his father, the judge, and to be there with us when we are justified and we are given a good verdict from the Lord and he decrees us righteous and just as if we had never sinned. It really hit me 
that, you know, we have no clue how much joy that brings to Jesus. In this very book, we will read later where, where it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Beloved, that joy is you and me. That joy is everyone who will receive the gift that he is offering, the gift of himself and justification by faith alone. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let's go on. I'm trying to skim over and hit highlights here because there's so much in chapter 2 to dig into. It's amazing. In chapter 3, we go on and we find out how Jesus is superior to Moses and the law. He focuses there. He has a good commendation about Moses. Don't get us wrong. He's not saying Moses was bad or whatever. He's just saying Moses was great, but Jesus is even greater. Jesus is superior even to Moses. Praise God. I want to point out, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3, that there's this discussion that will begin, and it will carry into chapter 4, about the people that came out and how that Moses led out of Egypt, and how all of them died. If you'll remember the story, you can go back in the Torah and read it. In the first five books of Moses, you'll see how they had rebellion and constant murmuring and all of that throughout the wilderness. And then they come to Kadesh Barnea and they say, nope, the giants are too big. We're not going in. So they, God says, okay, then wander around. Every one of you will die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. And then they're going to be the ones that lead the new generation in and they're going into the promise. So why did that happen? It happened because of their unbelief and their rebellion. That's what's the focus of this. Now, the point that I want to make here is that he's talking about their unbelief and what it kept them from was enjoying the rest that would have been provided them inside the promised land once they got into the land. You'll see that after you go through the book of Joshua. You will see how God gives them the victory over their enemies, drives out the forces that were there, and then they have rest and they can enjoy the land. So that's kind of the correlation here that he's talking about. But what I want to point out to you is how it, it focuses on the danger of unbelief. It says this in verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And then he continues this topic in chapter 4 about there is, a, there is a promise of some that are entering the rest, but they didn't get to, to uh, enjoy that. And he says this in verse 2, the latter part of verse 2, that, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. It's not just the hearing of the word that will bring us our salvation. It does lead us to Christ. It does convict us of sin. It does draw us to him. It does let us know what God thinks or the promises of God. Yes, 
But the only way that we can receive that and benefit from it is when we take God. The Bible says God's given to every man a measure, every person a measure of faith. We got to take our faith and and mix it, commingle it or combine it with that word. We have to combine, combine it with the logos that we hear. And if we do not do that, it will not um, benefit us. It's similar to, you know, let's say you have a Christmas gift or a, a family, you know, you give someone a gift for their anniversary or for their birthday or whatever it is. It's not going to benefit them if they don't receive it and open it up and then enjoy it, whatever it is. It won't benefit them a bit. They can take it home and they can set it on a shelf like many times we have done with the Bible they could set it on a shelf and look at it all day long in its nice pretty bow and all of that kind of stuff. But whatever's inside will never benefit them unless they actually receive it and open it up and enjoy it. It's, it's similar to that. We've got to mix the Word of God with faith in order to be able to receive what God intended when He said it to us. Praise God. So he goes on and he talks about this rest. Now, in my deeper study, I'll get into more of this, but it's really, that's what the Feast of the Sabbath was all about. If you go back and you look in Leviticus 23, you will see that when the Lord defines his feasts, the very first one he lists is the Feast of the Sabbath, which is a weekly event. And the purpose of the Sabbath was to show us the true rest that God had intended, and that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says this, for instance, in verse 10 of chapter 4, For he who has entered his rest, meaning Jesus, the rest that Jesus brings, has himself ceased, also ceased from his works as God did from his. In other words, we're not relying on works anymore. We recognize that the entire rest and the assurance of our salvation is found in only one place, and that is in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us through that cross. Praise be to God. And then he goes on and he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. And then he starts talking about the word of God, and we're familiar with many of these verses. They're very, very well known. This is talking about the um, the Rama word. I'm sorry, the the Logos word of God, and it talks about how every bit, every word in the Scripture is alive. It is powerful. It is energetic, full of energy to accomplish what it was designed to do, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. In this context, now we use it a lot of times, and I believe it's a great application as a word against the enemy. Why do we say we can do that? We can do that because Jesus did that. When he was tempted by the devil, he said, it is written, and that was his weapon against the enemy. So yes, it is a weapon against the enemy. But in this context, it is also talking about it being a two-edged sword that cuts into us like a surgeon would to cut something out of us that is harmful to us. It's talking about <clears throat> its convicting power. And with one blow, with one cut, he can dig in and he can reveal to us where our need is. 
so that he draws us to himself. It's like the surgeon that will use the knife to cut out a cancer or something that is harming you. That's what he's talking about here. <clears throat> In verse 14 through 16, he talks about our great high priest. He speaks about how he's tempted like we are because he was a human being, but he never sinned. Therefore, he is the victor over that and can help us. And this gives us our basis for why we can come before the throne of grace boldly. It says to obtain, to receive what is granted to us as our own, and to never let it go, but to rather hold on to it and keep it, latch on to it. In our time of need, whatever mercy or grace we need, in our time of need, whatever, whenever, including a time of temptation. He goes on in chapter 5. He speaks about how Jesus is the superior high priest. In other words, the, the model was the high priest of the Old Testament under Aaron, who was appointed by God at that time. But that was all a model to show us Jesus, who is the superior high priest. And oh, hallelujah. And then he goes on and he says, as a matter of fact, verse 10, that Jesus is now priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll get more into that a little bit tomorrow. He speaks in beginning in verse 12 and into chapter 6 about his disappointment in their lack of spiritual maturity. He expects them to grow up. He says right now, you know, I'm sad to say, but you're still babes. You still got to have the breast milk only or the, the bottle milk. You, you're not even ready for the, the deeper things of God. He says solid food in verse 14 belongs to those who um, are of full age. Let me read it. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, this is kind of like, you know, going to the gym for a workout or something like that. Now, in previous days, I was much more able to do that than I am now. But I remember going to the gym five days a week, and I loved it. And I would leave there going, thank you, Jesus. And what was I doing? I was exercising. I was helping to build my body up. Exercise is designed to do that. But Exercise requires discipline, and there is some discomfort associated with it. you got to be diligent. And it, as you're doing it, as those muscles are, are growing and, and increasing and strengthening, there might be a little bit of pain associated with that and, you know, aches and things like that. But what you're doing is you're making yourself stronger. And that's what he's talking about here, those who have spiritual maturity because... They have, through habit, practice, and regular custom, worked on and exercised, trained their senses, their ability to perceive and judge good and evil, so that they can understand and distinguish between the two. That's what he's talking about here, and it takes us right into a, a gym and a workout kind of idea 
and concept to understand what he's talking about here. So in other words, he's defining for us those who are spiritually mature are those who have made it a habit and a custom to go to the gym every day and to work their salvation out and to work um, to exercise and train themselves in the Spirit of God, in prayer with the Spirit of God, in, in prayer with the Lord, in the Word of God to understand the difference between good and evil. They've been trained to do that. And if you go to the gym just ever so often, it's not going to do you any good long term. But if you make a commitment and you go on a regular basis, you will see your body get stronger, you get healthier, you have more energy. There's lots of benefits to that. And so that's the, the illustration and the analogy he's using here. He continues that in chapter 6, defining for us some of the elementary principles um, of the faith versus the things that, that he wants us to go on to do. In verse 4 through 6 of chapter 6, he speaks about those that, you know, had once been, once tasted and, and all of that, had truly experienced this and not being able to bring them back to the things of God. And he says, you know, very clearly that it says they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So his desire is that we not have anything to do with that, but rather we stay the course. We train ourselves. We stay true to God. He says this in verse 9. He says, but beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. In other words, I'm believing God. That doesn't apply to you. You know, I believe greater things about you. And then he goes on and he gives the testimony of this church and its application to us. And I really want to point this out. Verse 10 through 12. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not, do not become sluggish. In other words, if you don't keep exercising, you're going to become sluggish. You're going to become lazy. He says, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here again, you can look at the gym situation. You know, you, you believe that if you exercise, your body's going to be stronger. And guess what? Then the patience comes in and that you actually go to the gym five days every week or three days every week or whatever on a regular basis and you put yourself on the machines, you get on the treadmill, you pick up the weights or whatever it is and you actually work at it and you work at it. So it's faith and patience. we got to have both. We can't just give up and say, well, you know, I went to the gym two days this week and, you know, I hadn't been in five years, but I went two days this week and, man, I just still don't feel real good. I, I don't think it's doing anything for me, so you just give up. No, it takes faith and patience to really benefit and to inherit the promise. Praise be to God. And then he goes on and he, um, he begins to talk about uh, Abraham and how how it blessed him so much. God, it blessed God so much that he swore by himself. It, it gets into the swearing and oath that God did. But I wanted just to point out this. We'll get more into it when, in a deeper study. 
But right here it says in verse 14 saying, Surely blessing I'll bless you, multiplying I'll multiply you. That was found in Genesis 22 after Abraham had passed the test and was willing to offer Isaac on the altar to the Lord because he loved God more than he loved his own son. And that blessed the heart of God so much. He said, you know, Abraham, I'm not only going to bless you, I'm going to go way over and above. I'm going to bless you in all kinds of blessing ways. Hallelujah. How can we also bless the heart of God in ways like Abraham did with our faith, with our love, and with our devotion? May it be so in Jesus' name. And then he ends that chapter talking about how the hope that we have through Jesus Christ is an anchor of the soul. You remember we talked earlier about the, the boat drifting away. Oh, if the boat is anchored down, it doesn't drift anywhere. It's got to be anchored. There's got to be a tightness and a security to that. And Jesus is the anchor. He's the one that safeguards us. Hallelujah. He's the superior high, high priest on our behalf that has entered into the veil. Our responsibility is to give diligent heed to the things we've studied so that we don't leave any loose ropes tied to the, to the dock that could cause us to kind of drift off. But let us be anchored in Jesus Christ. I pray this has been a blessing to you today. And Lord willing, you can join us again for more episodes of Bible Bites in Jesus' name. Bless you. The Lord bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.